78644 is brought to you by Texas Hatters, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, Wendy R. Bookery and Gifts, Corazon Austin Realty, and Viva Terlingua, the Big Bang of Texas Music Exhibit at the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University. Playing the long game means pursuing lasting success through patience and persistence over time, rather than seeking quick wins. The payoff typically is achieving significant sustainable success, even if it takes time and effort to reach that point. On this episode, we'll discuss the long game with several artists and musicians. I'm Stephen Collins, and this is 78644. For the last 10 years, Theo Lawrence has been one of France's leading purveyors of the tight, subtle American groove. He fully comes into his own with his latest Austin-crafted album, Charie, in a genre French musicians are not expected to have classic country and western. The whole gamut of a Texas dance hall band delivered with a croon straight out of Charlie Rich or Ray Price's golden years. Thea Lawrence joined us from Paris by Zoom. I didn't grow up listening to country music at all. My parents are not really uh, country music fans at all. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. And so, like, uh, it was a way for me to, uh, you, you know, um, be rebellious uh, to my parents was to listen to uh, country music because they're like rock and roll fans. So they like they like the Rolling Stones, Iggy Pop, uh, David Bowie, that kind of stuff. And and so when I discovered all that music, like Loretta Lynn and um, and George Jones and things like that, I didn't really know what it was, but I could tell that it was uh, it was not their uh, their cup of tea. And so I liked it even more. And uh, I, I I discovered country music probably through the Rolling Stones, listening to like album like Sticky Fingers, it turned me on to Graham Parsons and uh, also um, somebody uh, bought me a, a book uh, like a book of Ro- Robert Crumb's illustration when I was real young and uh, was all these uh, drawings of old the uh, blues players from the Delta and old string bands from the 20s and 30s. And there was a little CD at the end of the book. And uh, same, I didn't really know what all that music was, but I was drawn by the uh, authenticity and the the rawness of it. And also listening to all the rock bands when I was, not only the Rolling Stones, but when I was 12, 13, I was listening to all these British like blues boom, uh, acts and uh, I was I was reading all their like interviews, reading all the magazines about rock and roll in the '60s, and they were all talking about the same people, and uh, that's how I got interested in not only country but like the blues and rural rural American music in, in general. And then from that point on, I kind of you know uh, had my preferences and uh, built my preferences over the years but it, it was a, a long a slow discovery for me because in france nobody listens to that kind of stuff they it's very it's uh, treated as a you know a novelty people don't really know the history of it they don't really pay attention to the words they don't pay attention to the the stories they don't know 
much about it. So I really had to make to make my own discovery of it. It was through, you know, books, movies, going to the record stores with my friends when I was in the, in college and uh, discovering it all by myself. How did I transition from uh, studying it to writing it? When I had my first rock and roll bands, it was always very uh, like hard rock sounding. And because I was trying to match my references back then, which were like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones I'm talking about, like way back when I started playing with bands. And because I was drawn by the energy of a rock band. And so that was like a, a gateway for me to uh, the music I, I, I listen to right now. But uh, years, like year after years, I was adapting, I guess, my songwriting to my new references. The more I was listening to country stuff or blue stuff, the the, the more I was studying this, how the singers sang their songs, uh, like their uh, their their inflections, the way they articulated the words, the chord progression. It all seemed very different than uh, the usual rock bands that you listen to when you first discover rock and roll. And so I, I started being really interested in the details of and the uh, vocabulary of these styles, how you write, how like how you come to tell a good story, how you what's a what's a good melody. And so it, it evolved slowly over the years. Uh, the main basis of our career is here in Europe, because um, for years and years, we, we actually only played Europe. First, France, and kind of did the most what we could do in uh, in our own country, and then started traveling, you know, in the country abroad, like the Netherlands and uh, Sweden and, uh, well, Scandinavia in general. I was always very drawn to American culture, but it was, I was going there with my, like, with my, I don't know, uh, a couple times with my parents on holidays or stuff like that, but I could never, we could never really work there. And it's always been for me a kind of uh, uh, El Dorado, you know, if I, if I may say, you know, it's where, it's where it all took place. The music I like, the music I love and all the, cul the culture I'm passionate about is from there. But it's always been very, very like a, like a fantasy, you know, because I, I so far away, yet so close in my heart and in my imagination. If I could love you just the way that I used to love When I was a child, early would I could trust you
tender and true All my troubles could turn into little marbles I would be forever, never Baseball and music, a match made in Lockhart. Say goodbye to Take Me Out to the Ball Game and say hello to the Lockhart Sandlot Record, our town's first ever baseball team album. Featuring musicians from the Hawks and Meat City Smoke, the local Sandlot Baseball League has gone to vinyl and showcases their talented teammates. Musicians like Shane Renfro, Jonathan Ray Case, Parker Chapin, Kelly Dugan, Laura McNary, Catherine Chumber, Travis Knight, Shapes and Codes, R.F. Shannon, Will Rhodes, Taylor Mallory Burge, and Swazi. Plus a visit from Tamara Dyke and Shane Winfro here in the studio to discuss the record. I had moved to Lockhart uh, in August two years ago and um, essentially was sitting with my buddy Daniel Northcutt talking to him about how I really wanted to play baseball on the Texas Playboys team. I had been to the long time. I had fallen in love with the energy and the spirit of what was happening there. And having grown up playing softball, both slow pitch, fast pitch, and even had a year on a North Texas boys JV baseball team as the only girl on the team, but it had been 20 years, right? And so hanging out with him, asking him about, you know, what's going to take to get on the Playboys. And he started laughing and was like, forget it. There's, you know, over 100 people on that team. And then there was this pause. And then he was like, yeah, but uh, I've been thinking about starting a team here in Lockhart. The next thing you know, we started like thinking about how we wanted to kind of cast it like a film. We wanted to create like a really motley crew of lots of different individuals from lots of different backgrounds you know, cast a wide net and get people uh, involved and start recruiting. So between uh, me, him, and Kelly Duggan, uh, we started reaching out to lots of people in town. And then the next thing you know, it was uh, a meetup in my backyard um, on Cibolo Street. We had, you know, some snacks and some beers. And the idea was just to kind of break bread and and to really talk about what Sandlot baseball is. And so Daniel Northcutt, who had been playing on the Texas Playboys for a long time and had been really instrumental in that team, was able to kind of, you know, speak to the premise, which is essentially not serious, super fun, community-driven baseball. Wooden bats, leather balls, and, you know, a good time. 
and a way to create community and a way to create and build friendships. And there were people who had never met before in that, you know, uh, met up that day in my backyard, people I'd never met before for sure. And even people, you know, had later remarked down the road that, you know, people um, that had lived here for many years and, and knew people, but didn't know them, right? And so with that, we jumped in kind of straight away and started uh, practicing to sort of get to the root of what are the fundamentals that we have, what are we missing? Um, and we had, you know, over 30 people, I believe. Yeah, I think we had over 50 at the beginning and then whittled down into 35, I think, was the average. And then from there, it kind of slowed down a little bit. It was crazy. It was definitely crazy. And, uh, you know, it was impressive, too, to see how excited people were by it. And, you know, we started to set the rhythm of, you know, weekly practices on Sundays. And then suddenly we had splinter groups that were getting together and doing batting practice during the week. And there was just a real motivation to build something and create something. We had a lot of leadership kind of rise up to the top automatically. Lance on our team, for example, like it was pretty clear right away that he has this like performance background and an incredible voice and is just, you know, a really fun guy, but also really good at baseball and great at leading a team. And so pretty quickly, um, you know, we started to whip ourselves into shape. And then, yeah, you know, fast forward to we're playing our first game in March uh, at the long time in Austin. Was and was that last? Ramblers. Was that two years ago? Or? Two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. We played yeah. the Ramblers, the Ramblers. For our first game. It was right at the end of South by Southwest. Okay. And we had a serious roster and we were looking cool and wearing our uniforms for the first time. And, you know, it was like the, the good afternoon slot. And, you know, so many people were out. There's well over 100 people there watching us. And there was also this sense of like, you know, don't mess it up. Right. But it was so exciting. Yeah. I think we lost by a little bit. Also, I looked at the Rambers dugout and I was just like, oh, I have like three really old friends that I've known forever on that team. I didn't know they played. So then you start realizing that you don't know who you're going to see, like that you haven't seen in years on the other team. Mm-hmm. So you kind of reconnect with old friends and make new ones. The oh, Ramblers are the best. A busload of people came down from Lockhart, too. Remember oh, that? Oh, yeah. They're, uh, Gabe rented a party bus. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a real community turnout, you know, and it was a gamble, right? Like we didn't know what we were going to be like once we like stepped on the field, but it was super fun. And from there, it just continued to build and grow and expand. And, you know, I think some of the highlights have been that, you know, over the first year we formed a 501c3 so that we could be a charitable organization, both so we could work with, you know, a variety of different partners who want to support our endeavors and efforts Um, but also so that we can easily, um, you know, raise funds and money for other charitable organizations along the way, because giving back to the community is something that we have only barely skimmed the surface of, but it is absolutely our North Star and a place that we're continuing to push forward with. Um, We won the Sandlot World Series our very first year against the Texas Playboys, the team that I was not allowed to play on. You remember that, Shane? I recall. <laughs> it's I kind of a part of justice, no? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it was awesome. We were very, very excited that in the first year we were able to really come together, prove ourselves um, powerful opponents, if you will, and still have fun doing it, right? Absolutely, yeah. And we also, in the first year, um, began working with a local family here, a really amazing group of people, the Reeves family, who is helping us to develop and build our very own baseball field. 
from scratch. Out near the two wishes, right? Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. We have been working alongside them collaboratively over the past, I'd say it's probably been a 10-month project at this point, um, to, you know, clear the land, knock down trees. We've been out there with, you know, our bare hands picking up roots and rocks. Roots and rocks, yep. Backbreaking work. Um you know, to make a field happen so that we have a place to call home, but also so that we can be, so we can be hosts to other Sandlot teams and bring the community um, to our field. We've been locally playing. Um, our home field has been the Little League field on on uh, Carver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which has been great. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, we're growing and we're expanding. We have fans that want to come out and we want to be able to interject performance and music and art and other things at these games. So it's really just an incredible project that we're so grateful, you know, to be given that opportunity to utilize that space um, and develop it. And so then comes year two, and we realize we have so many people that want to play ball, and we build a second team. Yeah. Shane, what's that one called? That is called the Lockhart Hawks. (laughs) (laughs) That's the team I'm still on, but it's a Meat City Smoke. Here we are in the barbecue capital of Texas, right? So it makes a lot of sense. And both teams have been hosting folks from all over this this country. Um, we've had Canada too. Canada too, yeah. yeah. Um, and traveling. In fact, um, is it the Hawks that are going to Brooklyn this week? Yeah, a lot of them are up there now. They're playing the Brooklyn Bad Stars in Prospect Park. Wow, that's great. Which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, so world word travels fast, and we've been, you know, working hard at getting folks um, aware of what Sandlot is, what we are doing as a community, what our teams are up to, um, and, you know, really spreading the word, and things are growing. I think we have over 55 players probably across two teams now, mm-hmm. um, and we're not we have no plans to stop, right? So right now we're looking at a field that we hope will be ready in time for the Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest come November. All right, it's coming up, yeah. Would you mind to kind of talk about what Sandlot Baseball is and why it's different? Sandlot Baseball is, uh, last time I checked, um, approximately 80 teams nationwide, built on the premise of community-oriented, give-back-centered, fun baseball without your daddy sitting in the bleachers yelling at you and the I mean, he's welcome to do that right <laughs> i mean my dad has come to games and he definitely tried to give me tips he does it with a much different delivery these days he's like okay. hey uh, hey buddy you might want to uh step up in that batter's box you know that kind of thing <laughs> that's not how it was in 1988 no, no. uh <laughs> it's not how it is at that field either when i go and my son's playing it either some things never change, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the, the idea being that we can, as a, adults, go out and play a sport that we love, whether you have skills from the past or none at all. Uh, very diverse. Everybody's welcome. It's inclusive. Let's have a good time, right? It is primarily comprised of a lot of folks from creative industries. There's a lot of musicians on teams across the country. But we also fortunate to have all sorts of interesting folks on our team here in Lockhart. Farmers, welders, day laborers. Um, you know, we have an accountant on our team. We have a biologist on our team. It's truly a motley crew. Um, and each field um, 
and or team that we play often has, you know, sort of fun slash weird rules that come with the games too. So like, for example, the game that we were talking about at the World Series, tiebreaker was shotgunning a beer. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we had a tie game and then you just, whoever could do it. And the first one of those was a tie, so we just had to keep going down the line. Yeah, you got to shotgun the beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or arm wrestle or something, you know. Right, and there's other good equitable rules at different fields. Like the long time, if you hit a home run, then like over the fence and you're next at bat, you're bat and switch, you know, so. And what does uh, that mean? Talk to means you. like if you hit a home run, like in, if you, theoretically you could get up there and just keep hitting home runs. Okay. So if you bat right, the next time you're batting left-handed. So, oh, wow. That's, you yeah, know, most that's likely, Some people are good enough, too, but most likely you're not going to hit it no. over the fence like that. <laughs> that's like starting over. Right. Yeah. And then if you hit five home runs as a team, they start counting as outs against you. So it just kind of keeps things on level playing field. Five-run mm-hmm. rules. Like mm-hmm. if you start getting skunked and the other team is just scoring, 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 after five, it's like, all right, let's switch it up. That way you guys get a chance to, to come back. And I think the point of that is to squash ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that- none of us are unique in that we don't have ego, right? But to come in off the field after you strike out and like throw your helmet and cuss and you know freak out, like that's not Sandlot. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen from time to time, but predominantly, that's not the sense. That's not the focus, right? You know, there's been so many times when somebody's had a bad play and then they get really down on themselves, and then the rest of the team is like, "Dude, bro, like." Be chill, like it's all good, you know, it's just a game, right? And after the game, the way that we host teams here in Lockhart, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say like, we've become known for that hospitality, yeah. you know? I think that's what really got us known last year was river parties, like hanging out before or after the game at the river, treating them to pizzas at Lupin Lil's or Old Pal or just taking them to local businesses yeah. here. So we all get to hang out and enjoy Lockhart together. And- we, I like to say that people are Lockhart curious. Yeah. Right, okay. And so I feel like when you give them the opportunity to come hang and play, like, they're here to play and they want to have a good time, but they're also here to hang out with us afterwards, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's pretty rare for people to just jump on the highway and drive home, you know? I think that's part of it. It's like getting to know these other teams and these other players is something that's also been just so fun and special. You know, like, let's not pretend. It's hard to make friends as we get older. Yeah. It just is. Right? Like life happens. We're busy. Some of us have kids, you know, it just becomes a little more difficult. And so to be able to walk out on the field, everybody is literally on the same level and we all have the same kind of shared goal of having a good time, playing a fun game and then coming off the field and hanging out together. Yeah. You know, that's what it's about. Makes sense. Well, then uh, let's talk a little bit about the record because you, I guess, noticed that there was tons of musicians and songwriters on the on the Hawks. Did you come up with the idea to make a record to, or as a fundraiser type of thing? Yeah, so my background many years ago was um, working for uh, several different record labels, and then I had my own label services company when I was living in Berlin, and I used to press records all the time, right? And hadn't done it in a very, very long time. And I was sitting, uh, having coffee with... Karen Kelleher, the CEO of Gold Rush Vinyl, which is an amazing vinyl manufacturing facility here in Austin, a couple months ago. And we were just talking about like, oh man, we got to find something cool to work on together. And just suddenly in that conversation, it hit me because she's Lockhart Curious herself. And we were talking about Sandlot Baseball and I just literally had this aha moment. I was like, you know what? 
we should do an album to focus and feature all of these amazing musicians on our team. And I just started off the top of my head naming everyone I knew who was a songwriter or a musician. And just right there on the spot had already come up with like eight or nine of them. One of my focuses working with the team has been raising funds and finding sponsors and partners because, you know, we are 501c3, but we also, you know, we have operating costs, right? We're paying umpires, we pay to host people, we pay to rent the field, uh, pay to travel, things like that. And uh, obviously we're building the field, so there's a lot of money to be raised there too. It happened really quickly. I was actually looking back the other day, um, I sent the email and I'll admit I was a little nervous, like are people gonna be receptive to this idea? Talk to Shane about it actually before I decided to send it out to see what he thought. Yeah, you were stoked. And, and then you decided that you wanted to try to do an original. So most of the songs have already been pre-recorded or they could be like a demo or I think the important part was that we owned the rights to them. That way we didn't have to mm -hmm. jump through those hoops later. But yeah, the timeline was crazy. It was like, all right, write it, write and record a song. And I think we had like two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> let me just say, like, I wanted to make sure we could get this out this year, that we could raise funds and primarily awareness for what we're doing in Lockhart, who we are as a team, all the amazing talent we have here, so that we could begin to really, you know, build upon all the great work we've already done, but get ready and anticipate the opening of this field, right? So two weeks to get it done and very quick turn on, you know, getting the masters done, getting the artwork collected um, and done as well, everything. But the plan is, you know, yes, it will raise some funds for the team, absolutely. We're also going to do the following. We're going to release the record only on our social channels um, for sale, vinyl only, and our website. And then physically, to purchase a record, you must go to a participating Lockhart retailer. So, for example, Lockhart Arts and Crafts, Chaparral, Good Things, a variety of others that Plum we're going to be... Records. Yeah, yes. Plum Creek, yeah. Plum Creek, Best Little Wine and Bookshop, I hope, yeah. will be open to carrying. So we're still, you know, brokering those relationships. But the point is we want to drive traffic to those retailers, right? Sure. And then the goal is to pre-release this uh, either September or October and have it, you know, absolutely in hand. In October, release date will be announced soon, and then we'll be doing an album release party featuring some of the artists on the album performing, most likely in their baseball uniforms, <laughs> during Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest weekend. Uh, we haven't chosen the date yet, but it'll likely be, you know, the night before the Fest kicks off or one of the two um, days of Barbecue Fest because we have a Hawks game uh, on the 4th, I believe, and the Smoke game on the 5th, or I may have those reversed. Okay, so you but. have a game on Saturday mm -hmm. and Sunday. Okay. Forgot to tell you the name of the album. So the label is Stolen Bass Records, <laughs> because why not? All right. <laughs> and the album is called Sandlot Season 1 Lockhart. Okay. You know, these are all Lockhart-based musicians, and if things go well, this will be one of many in a series. I think next year, if we proceed, then the goal would be to focus again with like, you know, 50% or so Lockhart musicians, open it up to a double album and start focusing primarily on Texas-based musicians. Okay. And then just continue to grow from there. That's great. Yeah, really cool thing. And so people submitted uh, songs that maybe were unique to the record, I suppose, right? Yeah, so I, I submitted, I've been mostly a songwriter the last five or six years and uh, RF Shannon's my project and we 
just released digitally our new album. So I took a demo version of one of those songs. It sounded pretty good though. Like <laughs> the quality was good and everything. And it was, a, it was just a different version of the song I'd worked up, different lyrics, different melodies. There's a different instrumental breakdown and I was really attached to it, but I, it just didn't fit with the vibe of the rest of the record. So mm. I was really excited to get uh, an avenue to like release that and have it get out in the world. Yeah. And a lot of other things are just like, you know, people that maybe don't play out all the time or maybe have never really played out much. And hey, they're great songwriters. So yeah, that's I think great. there's going to be a lot of hidden gems on there. And then yeah. we have the one original that we wrote. I wrote with um, JRC and, and uh, Parker Chapin. Both those JRC guys have been on the show. Parker was on this one we just released. Oh, cool. On our cool. show here. Good so timing. yeah, those are all great people. Yeah, we just sat in the backyard. My dad was cooking shrimp Diablos. And we were reading the poem Casey at the Bat and just trying to get some inspiration for like a community, inclusive, fun, summer vibe, you know? Yeah. And of course, I couldn't get it really away from the Mungo Jerry, you know, like song. So like that was kind of this backbone in my in my head of like what the pace would be. But sure. Yeah. It was fun. It came together pretty easy. You had some, uh, some uh, backup uh, vocalists too, didn't you? Oh, uh, yeah. And then whenever I finally got it off the ground, I got... Laura and Kelly from the team, and we just had some beers, and <laughs> and Kat was there, my my love. She's been to a practice, like you could say she's a holiday. Yeah, she's definitely a, a a big fan of the team. That's yeah, for sure. Um, and so they yeah, they sing backup, right? Yeah, we just oh, did that's like great. A, you know, like Lucy Goosey kind of yeah. gang vocals. I can't get it out of my head. I know I have a special connection to it, but it's so catchy and. There's some name dropping going on in there. Is it like baseball name dropping? It's or? a Lockhart name dropping. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's save that, actually. If you know, okay. you know. Yeah, if you know, stuff. you know. Yeah, it's a hidden cue. <laughs> Wait for the record and we'll see who's named. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one song that we will be releasing digitally. All others will be vinyl only to keep that exclusive. And it will be an exclusive print run as well of the record. We want, we want them to uh, maintain their value. Absolutely. That's a fantastic idea, and I love the vision of, of moving forward with it and seeing what, what, where it goes. So this is, a, this is great. And it's, it's, it's great to hear the community-minded idea behind Sandlot in general and how you've, you've taken it and, and personalized it to Lockhart and, and our community and how our community's been able to reach out to other communities and give them hospitality where they may not have experienced that. And this is one way to do that, too. Take it, take it with them, right? Absolutely. Well, and I think that this is an idea that wouldn't be complete without the support of everyone on the team getting behind it, not just the musicians who provided amazing tracks for it, but other people on the team who are just supportive of the evolution of ideas like this. And we're all cheering each other on, you know, I think yeah. that's one of the things that's become so special about what we have is we have this WhatsApp chat group that we started two years ago. I just looked this morning because I was looking for somebody's contact. We have 70-something people in this chat group. And it's like, hey, man, I got to move a refrigerator. Who can be here in an hour? Or does anybody have any child care you know, recommendations? Mm -hmm. Or, yo, I've got a show tonight at Old Pal. Can you guys come down and you know support? And I feel like that is the essence of also what made me feel okay with being vulnerable and saying, hey, I have this idea. Sure, yeah. What do you what do you think? Yeah. Can we do this together, right? And then it again, it it's bigger than just one person. It's everybody coming around and going. I support these teams. I support local musicians. 
I'm going to buy a record and I'm going to get behind it. And I think that it is so rare and unique to find a baseball team that's also making music together. Yeah, it is. I, I would venture to say that nobody else is doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I was, was going to say that to you. Tamara prepared a little sampler of the album for us to take a listen to. Come on down, come on down. City slickers, come on down with your cowboy. Yeah, bring you back. Desert nights on Texas plains I've been thinking I'd like for my life to change And if I could, I would give her my last name Summertime, the beach is banging Hanging with my homies and sucking up sweet Watching the baddies do the bang bang sweetie Working my lines, they are flying Flipping that hair, she catches my eye Flashing that grill like a hot wax shine So let's all buy some land Start a brand new band physical vinyl album will be for sale via the Hawks website and the Meat City Smoke Hawks Instagram accounts and exclusively at participating Lockhart retailers. Each purchase directly benefits the Lockhart Sandlot Baseball Club, which is a 501c3 organization.
nonprofit. The album release party will be at Wishing Well Field on Saturday, November 4th at 7.30 p.m. Details to be announced soon. Somewhere is a play by Lockhart native Maricela Trevino Orta. She went to high school here and is experiencing a lot of success in the national theater scene. Somewhere is directed by Eric Beck and Miranda Martinez, and they joined us here in the studio to talk about the play. Thank you both for taking time to come into the studio. You're and, welcome. Uh, yeah, thanks thank for having you. us. Yeah, and visit with, with us about this new play, which is uh, written by a, a person from Lockhart, right? Or, or a student from Lockhart? Can that, you talk that's correct. about that? That's correct, yes. Um, her name's Maricela Trevino Orta, um, and her parents still live here, and uh, uh, as do a couple of her siblings. Um, she's a Lockhart High School graduate, I think early 2000s, something like that. And um, she started off as a poet and sort of discovered playwriting along the way uh, and has written about 15 plays, I think. Um, and she's kind of a little bit up and coming, I guess. More and more of her works are getting produced around the nation. Yeah, it's a prize to have a true Lockhart native to, to have this show. Um, and her, her work is truly being slowly produced all over the, the United States right now. It's really cool to able to grab her early on. Early on, yes, oh, that's exactly. cool. Yeah, that's that's a that's an exciting thing. You feel like you don't really get to hear that too often. Right. Like a small town person actually succeeding very successfully in the world of theater and being able to be produced so wide round from such a small town. I feel like a lot of times it can be kind of unheard of. And yeah. a lot of people from small towns really strive for that. And it's it's just really cool to be able to to do this kind of association with her. And is this the first time that one of her plays has been done here in Lockhart? It is, yes. It, it is. Actually. It's. She's actually, that's one of her biggest, she's so excited that mm -hmm. it, this is her very first show in in Lockhart at the Gaslight. It's It's really important, I feel like, for all of us. Yeah, yeah and she's, uh, she's very excited because her, her parents don't get to see her shows that often because they're done usually, like I said, on the West Coast or... East Coast or far-flung places, so that she's very excited that they could actually see one of her plays. And it, it, was she involved with the with the Baker, or the Gaslight Baker? I don't know that she was. I never actually asked her that. I th actually, I think I think when she was around, it, would have, it was mostly a movie theater. Yeah, I, I think she really said that the other day that it was a movie theater when she was in high school yeah, or something like yeah. that. The play, so somewhere a primer for the end of days, and I I do really like to include the full title because really? it truly is. A primer for the end of days. It's all about that transitional period between the life we have now and what we could be heading towards if there isn't any change made. And it's so, to me, truly visceral because you everything is so real. You can completely feel and see how all these things could completely come true and how the earth, as what happens in the show, just kind of takes itself back. Okay, so it's like, it's an uplifting thing. <laughs> and, and actually, well, I mean, it's, I think it's I, would actually, I would actually call it um, the, the play uplifting, actually, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. I like uh, to I say it makes you think. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure uplifting is actually the right thing, but it's, but it's, but it's, it's, it's not like a downer for sure. She puts a note in the, in the script that says, this, this play is not, this is not Mad Max Fury Road. This is not right. like, you know, 
people like killing each other over. And it's the, not The Walking Dead. It's not On the, the scale of dead, apocalyptic, no, no. I think she gave it a five. Yes, okay. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, there, it, there is some like there, there are some. Uh, I don't know if supernatural is the right word, but some sort of maybe fantastical elements to the show uh, mm-hmm. that we won't spoil. But they're they're pretty cool, and they're and they and they kind of add to the drama of the show. Oh, that's great! Yeah, yeah because it, I don't know about you guys, but it's like. We are becoming sci-fi, you know. Like <laughs> yes, sci-fi. Yes, it's like completely. kind of like looking at National Geographic, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm interested in in seeing what what happens. So it's so it's sort of dystopian, but also more of for whom the bell tolls is what it sounds like. It's, it's a little bit, yeah. It's got it's got like a um, so um, one of the, one of the things that there's um, a lot of people have died, and the insects are dying, and the food is becoming scarce. Um, and the story is, it's two different groups of people. One of them is uh, led by a scientist named Cassandra, who uh, has a, working on a butterfly lab in Minnesota. Um, she manages to, to, after all the butterflies have died, but she manages to hatch a group of them. Uh, and her brother, who's Alexander, uh, is with her. And they decide that they're going to let the butterflies go and follow them. Uh, and instead of going to Mexico, like they usually do, they're heading to the West Coast. And along the way, they run into a group of four people who are living on a truffle farm in eastern Oregon, uh, trying to trying to survive by uh, harvesting truffles and whatever they can find in the wild. Um, and so the, the it's kind of it's kind of like Cassandra and Alexander are like the people that are on the move. They're 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 trying to they're trying new stuff. They're gonna you know they're gonna follow go on kind of almost an adventure. Um, and the people on the truffle farm are. Purely there for survival. They're purely there for survival. They're just trying to get by. They're just like we're, you know, and and they're, and they're having trouble getting by because their mushrooms are getting um, destroyed by a fungus that's taken over their farm. So um, that's kind of the plot of the play. These two groups meet up, and they're sort of different. And the two different kind of angles of honestly of human survival of whether it's do you survive to live or do you survive to thrive. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. And when is it? Taking place? It opens tomorrow, September, tomorrow when we're recording this, September 8th. And it runs for three weekends uh, through the 23rd of September. So it runs through the end of the month? Runs through, yeah, the 23rd, yeah. Okay, Nine performances, yes. Is the uh, playwright going to be able to be here? She she will be at the opening weekend. She's actually going to come to all three shows opening weekend, yeah. Okay, and that's this weekend? That's this weekend, yeah. Yes, and on um, the 9th, we're going to have a talk back with her and the cast and us. And it's going to be... I just feel like it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. What a great thing. You know, just, I, I'm always fascinated, like, how, you know, how, how a playwright gets their plays produced. Like, do you, do you like submit them to groups or something? It's kind of fascinating. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird process. So like, um, there, there are big play companies that there's like three or four of them that most of the shows that are done in the United States are, um, they they control the rights, the performance rights, and they publish the scripts. So you you would get a you would get a script from them, and then you would choose from 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 those. So they're the publishing house. They're publishing house, yeah, basically. Okay. Um, hers is not that. Hers uh, was has not been published though. Um, in the last couple of years, she has had two of her plays published by Concord, which is probably the biggest of, mm-hmm. of the, all the um, the the straight ahead drama uh, production com- or uh, royalty companies. Um, hers she had. Um, it was commissioned by by Temple University in Pencil, in Philadelphia originally, and then 
she put it on this, uh, there's this, this place, this website called New Play Exchange. I was going to say she put it on New Play Exchange, yeah, didn't she? Yeah, so um, all, all the pe- people that don't get their plays published, that they can put their, their shows up on, their scripts up on New Play Exchange. People download them, people from anywhere in the world can download them and read them. And then the idea is that you get in touch with the author about securing the rights to produce them. Yeah, so, I actually, my, my play got produced the same way out in um, um, Utah. But it's a take on um, the yellow wallpaper so it's just called Wallpaper, and it's a one-act based on, is is it, in the short story, the, the Yellow Wallpaper, it's a woman going crazy talking to the to the wallpaper, but I made the wallpaper a, a woman. And that relationship of um, female hysteria in that time, um, but it got produced at, a, at the um, Great Salt Lake Fringe Festival. And the way that that happened was, um, one of the directors just happened to find it, or when I think one of the people in the community, in the Utah community, found it, and then e- they just emailed me out of the blue, and then they had it, and then they just ended up producing it over the summer. It's it's a really interesting process because they really just the whoever wants it really just sends out an email saying, "Can I do this? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that okay with mm-hmm. you?" And I think that's fascinating for for people that are listening, like. You know, you've got we've got a, a hometown person here that's doing national work, and and that's something that's kind of mysterious. So if if you, I guess you can write a play or a record, whatever, put it out in the market, and people produce it. You yeah, know? yeah. Or they they make it happen. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It just it really kind of the power of theater really just kind of happens out of nowhere. Like if someone wants to do something, they're gonna find a way to I do mean, it, and they're gonna make it happen. I guess I would I would emphasize that I think I think I think. We've sort of avoided using the term post-apocalyptic to describe it, mostly because it because it does have those those um, uh, nuances. Yeah, of like, <laughs> oh, we're going to go see this dreadful thing where people eat each other or whatever uh, to survive. But um, it's not that. It's it's it's. I would call they it actually um, make a joke about that. They say, they are they eating each they, other? I I would call it more like poetic or more like sort of like that than than um, than like you know realistic and and and, and yeah all. i always like to i've been kind of noting it as a, a type of magical realism because it's there kind is of like a terrence malick versus a cormac mccarthy that's actually a pretty good analogy <laughs> check out somewhere this weekend at the baker theater friday at 8 p.m and saturday at 2 p.m matinee and a 9 p.m showing you can purchase tickets at mygpt.org So the phone rings, David the White House, and I'm like, oh, crap, Big Jim wants money. And I'm like, okay, Jim, what's up? And he goes, excuse me? It was a lady. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I thought you were a friend that was calling from the White House. And he says, excuse me, but are you David Torres? David A. Torres? I said, yes, ma'am. All right, we're calling to verify the value of the president's hat to put in the archives, and we need to verify. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I told her the price and everything. And she goes, okay. And then she goes, excuse me, but you said, Jim, and I need to make sure there's nothing left unturned on this conversation. You thought I was Big Jim. What does that mean? And she goes, is there something I need to know of? Because this is a president. And I'm like, well, let me tell you, street lingo, friends of ours call the White House. It really means the penitentiary. And she goes, so you're saying street lingo out there 
is called the White House really means sometimes the penitentiary. And I said, yeah, because the building's painted white. And she goes, <laughs> well, okay, well, I just needed to verify and clear the air because the whole group family of Texas Hatters has security clearance and y'all have all been checked out. Come on down to Texas Hatters where we top the best. I wanna go. Okay, do it all three of us. Then that won't make it stand out if we don't phrase together so much. All three of us do it. Just yeah. like on the melody. I wanna go home with the armadillo. I'm the music curator at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. Jerry Jeff Walker, his archives are one of the centerpiece archives that we have there. They are, uh, I would have to say, the almost like the gold standard. When you're there actually holding in your hands the letter that the young, unknown Jerry Jeff Walker wrote to his grandmother in 1967, thanking her for some money that she had sent him to fix an amplifier, and then just sort of casually mentioning that he'd written a song called Mr. Bojangles that was getting a little bit of radio airplay. I mean, it gives you chills. It's part of the origin story, the materials giving you that kind of insight and inspiration, and also letting anybody know that it just doesn't happen automatically, that it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of disappointments, you know, there's ups and downs. And so that's really our mission statement, to try to get a closer to that true story. Viva Terlingua, the Big Bang of Texas music. Now on display at the Whitliff Collections, seventh floor of the Albert B. Alkek Library, Texas State University, 601 University Drive, San Marcos. The exhibit goes through spring 2025. Weekdays, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Weekend hours vary. The cost is free. This is Annalisa Hinterclyden bringing you this week's episode of Tricks in the Kitchen. This week's topic asks the question, why did Julia Child have a personal beef with pounded round steak? For some chefs, those professional or simply at-home practitioners, the renowned French chef Julia Child is considered untouchable, and her words in regard to cuisine are never to be questioned. One such acolyte, the chef at Bruno's Bistro and Muscatel Bar in Burlingame, Vermont, viciously attacked an assistant in the kitchen for claiming that Miss Child's Bernays sauce tended to turn out lumpy. The chef, Bruno Putti, was so enraged over the callous comment regarding the woman he referred to as St. Julia that he filled a pastry bag full of overheated clam juice and squirted it on the hapless employee in an extremely sensitive area of the body. The emergency room personnel called it a once-in-a-career event. Bruno was convicted of assault with intention to harm using a dangerous culinary substance and sentenced to 50 hours community service that could not be performed within 100 feet of anything edible. My own personal bone to pick with Miss Child has a more local persona as she took it upon herself to poo-poo that Texas culinary staple known as chicken fried steak. We in Texas don't take lightly criticism of our favorite staple by someone who has to floss snail morsels out of her teeth on a regular basis. 
Texans fought and died in the front lines of France during two major wars, and one would have hoped that someone over there would have common courtesy to say thank you for the fact that sauerkraut isn't your go-to appetizer. This is Annalisa Hinterkleiden staying tuned in next week for Tricks in the Kitchen when the subject will be the use of lunch as a weapon. Just a reminder that our lineup is featured on our Instagram page and daily in our stories called The Roundup. If you want to know what's going on in town tonight, check out 78644podcast on Instagram. It's also the place to find out when our next episode is out. We want to remind folks about our 78644 Friends program. What are 78644 Friends? Well, they are super fans who believe that supporting musicians goes beyond just attending shows. It's about ensuring their return by tipping the band. To address the disparity musicians face in earning a living in today's world, we've initiated a program where you can make a monthly donation of $5 or more. And guess what? We will give 100% of your contribution back to the musicians who have played on our podcast. That's right, 100%. Supporting your favorite musicians has never been easier. Head over to 78644podcast.com, click the subscribe button, and sign up for $5 or more a month. It's the cost of just a couple of tacos. As a token of our gratitude, you'll be invited to exclusive 78644 hangs every month where exciting perks will await you. Past perks have included paying your cover at shows or offering a complimentary drink or gifting a swag bag to you. And that's not all. As a subscriber, you will receive a special link to a password protected playlist featuring all the original music from our show. This includes unreleased songs captured at the Troubadour Image and Sound Studio, and it's an opportunity to enjoy exclusive tracks all in one place. So don't miss out on the fun. Sign up today and secure your spot on the invite list and support the incredible musicians who bring their talent to our podcast. And remember, always tip the band. Your contribution makes a real difference in their lives. It's time for 78644 News. Friday, September 22nd, The Pearl. Nate Rodriguez is playing, 8 to 10 p.m. Good Things Grocery will have DJ Hannah Smoke. 7 to 9 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have the 90s Homecoming Dance with Kathleen Turner Overdrive. That's 7 p.m. It's a $15 cover. Martindale River Cafe will have Defoy from 8 to 10 p.m. Float Off Fannies will have Two Bins and a Bear, 7 to 9 p.m. Saturday, September 23rd, Old Pal will have the Deuce Bennett Trio, 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have the Badass Ladies Song Swap, Bear Ryan. Melissa Engelman and Heather Bishop are all playing together. It starts at 8 p.m. Martindale River Cafe will have Noah Harris, 8 to 10 p.m. The Lockhart Post Gallery will have the UTSA School of Art Emerge show happening. That's from 5 to 8 p.m. Treasures Market will have Max Brios and the Wastelighters with special guest Nick Gatan, 2 p.m. show for that. September 24th at the Pearl, the Sunday matinee with W.C. Clark, 3 to 5 p.m. Old Pal will have the Graham Wilkinson Brunch, 12 to 1 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have the Candle Making Workshop from 5 p.m. Goes on until it stops. Load Off Fannies will have Ethan Ford and special guest, 1 to 3 p.m. Tuesday, September 26th, Commerce Hall will have Two Step Tuesdays with Jenny and the Corn Ponies, that's 8 to 10 p.m. Wednesday, September 27th, The Pearl will have Chris Lancaster from 7 to 9 p.m. And Best Little Wine will have Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thursday, September 28th, Old Pal will have Mary Charlotte Young, 
From 7 to 9 p.m., El Rey will have karaoke starting at 8 p.m. Friday, September 29th, Martindale River Cafe will have Tammy Fest, and that starts at 8 to 10 p.m. If you like Tammy and George, go on out there and see it. The Pearl will have Grant Ewing starting at 8, going to 10 p.m. Old Pal will have Emily Herring and the FM Band. That's 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have Open Mic Night starting at 8 p.m. Saturday, September 30th, the Martindale River Cafe will have Tammy Fest, and that's from 8 to 10 p.m. Commerce Hall, Theo Lawrence and the Hearts starting at 7 p.m. Lodoff Annie's will have Jenny and the Jets. That's 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Sunday, October 1st, Tank Town will have DJ Scron John, 3 to 5 p.m. Wednesday, October 4th, Best Little Wine will have Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner. That's from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thursday, October 5th, The Pearl will have the Halliana Residency, 7 to 9 p.m. El Rey will have karaoke starting at 8 p.m. Friday, October 6th is First Friday, also Locktoberfest. Old Pal will have the Golden Roses from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Martindale River Cafe will have Van Darien from 8 to 10 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have Joe Bob's Bar and Grill Band, 8 to 10 p.m. At the Lockhart Art House, we'll have Siloed, a Tank Town art experience music from Blank Rules, Daymares, Lazy Suzanne, that starts at 5 to 10 p.m. at the Lockhart Art House. And that's it for 78644 News. Graham Wilkinson was born in Texas and embodies family and service values, raised by a preacher and a school teacher, balancing a thriving music career and being devoted father of three daughters and a rescue dog, he lives a full life. His song, Laugh Until It Makes Sense, reflects his message of positivity and love. In 2011, his single, Focus, from the Spiritual Accessories EP, dominated MTV.com as an independent artist. Yearbook in 2009 featured Alejandro Excavedo and Hayes Carl. In 2014, he received a grant from Black Fret leading to Because of You in 2016, merging reggae, rock and roll, and hip-hop with notable collaborators. In 2017, Wilkinson joined a PBS documentary about Albert E. Brumley, contributing songs from Brumley's notebooks. He also shared the stage with national acts like G-Love, Kimya Dawson, while juggling, recording, family, and touring. He came into the studio to visit with us and play some music. I was mentioning about being a part of that songwriter group and uh, for the last few years, and I've been a part of some songwriting groups where you're supposed to write one a week. And in some ways, I take it more seriously than I did any kind of academic situation, which is weird. You know, it's like, I'm like, I've got to go finish this song. Why? Just because I have to. The other day, I was going through, like, voice memos on my phone before I was a part of that song group from a few years ago. And it was reassuring because I was like, I used to just write songs, which is, you know, without without a prompt for no reason. Like it was still there. There was a, a need to. And even if, you know, I don't want to say throwaway songs, but, you know, like if nothing ever becomes of it, you're at least just taking the time to write it down. Like whatever that Woody Guthrie quote is where he's like, you know, every song out there exists. It just takes someone with a pencil and a paper and a guitar to catch it and write it down. Yeah. You know. I mean, someone was asking me the other day about, do you write the lyrics or the music first? And I was like, well, it's different. Sometimes you you hear it happening in your head. There are plenty of songs that I felt like I set out. I was like, I want to write a song that sounds like a, 
a Sam Cooke song for no other reason than I love Sam Cooke. And that's, but that's what I'm going to do today or with this part of my life. And I like some of those just as much as the ones that came out from, you know, basic everyday mundane inspiration, like the stuff that's just going on around you. There's something that you see. And, you know, and there's other songs that I've worked on that I didn't like how I was saying something and it bothered me so much that I wasn't able to finish it. And it's like, I've got a verse and a chorus and then I'm like, maybe it's only a verse and a chorus for this song. Yeah. That's it, man. That's the song. It's done, man. <laughs> no, I think that's cool. I mean, the expectation of having the, this traditional format and then and not doing that, that's kind of like liberating too. You know? On that note, my father-in-law, Hank Mackey, uh, is a jazz guitarist in New, in New Orleans. He said something to me years ago that really kind of blew me away. And he was talking about how all of these classic traditional songs like the great American songbook, all these, these cats that wrote, uh, there, there was an order. There was a, you know, a recipe, there was a way that you had to do it. And especially when you're putting the music together, I mean, that's why all those Lennon and McCartney songs, they, they're like Christmas songs too. They're like, they sound easy. They're so familiar. You got them. But then when you try to play them, you're like, this is actually pretty difficult. Actually, yeah. this is yeah. the, you wouldn't normally put these chords together in the kind of three chord rock and roll one, four, five thing. Yeah. You know, uh, but Hank said this, he said back in the day, they wrote songs from the, uh, universal we and not the I and the me. And I was like, all right, expand on that. What do you mean? And he, he mentioned Cole Porter, uh, just like Cole Porter would write songs to where anybody could sing them. It could be a guy or a girl, a girl talking about, and you know, didn't know it at the time he wasn't out until he moved to Paris, but he was gay. And so it's like, he was maybe in some ways trying to protect himself from, from the, you know, society, but in other ways, you know, the night we called it a day, anybody could be singing it. And there's a we thing in so many, not just pop songs, but even folk songs or whatever, country songs. It's all about, I got up this morning and I went and did this. And, you know, you look so beautiful to me, you know, like this right. whole personal type of thing, which is a more modern, uh, relatively modern thing in a way. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. And and the the collective we did make the folk song kind of, you know, folky. Yeah. <laughs> about folks, you know. Or relatable. Even with Dylan, you know, people were like, oh, he writes protest songs. And he did, but he, he wasn't political. He wrote about the issue and not the politician, you know. Oh, I, and and then it was a philosophical type of way of writing, you know. And that was in a collective we, you know, with an interrogative kind of we. Yeah, or like uh, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. Yeah. I mean, like, what a song. It's like, that's ba he saw a newspaper article from a long time ago, and he yeah. just told the story. Hurricane, same way. Hurricane, yeah. another one, great. But that early work of like, you know, asking questions: how many roads, you know, can a man walk down? You can kind of engage people in a conversation that otherwise they might be like, "I'm out of here." Hundred percent, man. You know what I mean? Oh, dude, he's the. I kind of, I mean, oddly enough, I kind of almost just got chills when you said that because it's so true. I mean, that's what drew me to him at a, at a young age, like that when people ask like, who, you know, who's your favorite songwriter or something? It's, it's the two Bobs, it's Dylan and Marley and yeah, it couldn't be more different, uh, but so similar in, in so many ways. Big and, ideas. Yeah. 
Dude, and like Dylan, actually, he was in an interview saying, is there somebody that you never, that you haven't played with that you never got to meet that you would want to? And he said, Bob Marley. And dude, they were in so many of the same circles. Yeah. So many, so close. Yeah. I'm like, oh, they never did meet. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. But that, I hadn't thought about it until you said it. But you're you're a writer, too, that loves the song, but you can't, you get, do you get bored with one type of writing style and want to move to a different thing you know i have that problem i like it but at the same time it's like man i need to like lock down on this but uh, are um, you doing that a lot yeah dude there's i think and uh i've been told by um some booking agents and some record labels and uh and, and i think it kind of backfired you know it's like trying to fit into a, a, a genre or a sound it's like you know 15 years ago when i really started going out on the road you know, I could open up for bigger, like red dirt country, Texas country guys here in, in Texas and then go on like the jam band tour thing out on the road, you know, open it up for you know, G-Love or Michael Franti or something like the Black Crows and then, oh, you know, playing with Hayes or something like that. And, yeah. you know, anytime I tried to um, like write a set list that I thought would be conducive to the crowd that I was playing with, it just... I'm going to say it flopped. It just, it wasn't right. But if I get out there in front of the country, you know, the red dirt folks, and I'm doing a, a reggae song or something with a, you know, a one drop beat, that's, that's better. I mean, that, cause that's, it's more authentic. And, yeah. you know, when you try to, I mean, the record label saying, or mainly booking agents, like, you know, if you just really did one record that was all Americana, that would really be great. <laughs> and I was like, and you hear things like that, and it, it backfires because I'm like, well, now I'm going to do one where every single song's a different genre, you know? Yeah. No, you Which know. is maybe shooting myself in the foot, but I mean... Well, don't you think, I mean, it used to be the, the name of the game was to not fit into a genre. It was to be unique. And then all of a sudden, the labels were like, you've got to be... This. This. And if you're not this all the way, we can't... We can't help you, which just means we can't. We don't know how to sell it. And I'm like, well, you you've got it. You could, you know, you got a mind on you. You can figure that out. Figure but, it out, yeah. But, <laughs> figure it out. But they couldn't, you know. I mean, like, and that's just, that. On that note, there's. I just saw a clip the other day of David Bowie talking about if you're if you're truly an artist, you don't ever write a song or, or write a record for someone. You write it for yourself. Yeah. You're never supposed to care about what other people think or what. And, and unfortunately, especially in our day and age, it's almost become the exact opposite to where people are trying to create and content that goes along with something that is, you know, trending yeah. or something. At a, at a certain point, you've got to be able, you don't have to, but like accepting your fate or just like being okay with who you are, like that kind of self-love you know, I'm getting all my therapy class, you know, sessions about it's like self-forgiveness and self-love. It's like being okay with who you are. And it's like, you know, I always thought I was going to be a drummer in a rock and roll band like Ricky Rocket and Poison. That's what I envisioned before I could, you know, when I was six and seven years old, I never thought I would be a songwriter. I never thought I would be an entertainer in this way. Like the, the, these restaurant gigs, these gigs where there are people are already there. You don't really have to. It's not like trying to get people to come to your Saxon pub show or the Continental Club when you need to sell tickets, you need to get cash. You know, my father-in-law again was like, 
musicians normally were the people in the background that were just playing to entertain. It wasn't a the pop star idea or rock star idea. It's a it's a relatively recent uh, adaptation to the the world of entertainment. Yeah, so it's the fifties. Yeah, and so it's like being okay with like, yeah, I'll play this corporate gig, then I'm going to go play a restaurant gig, then I'm going to go play a brewery or a winery. And, uh, you know, and like we were joking about earlier before we started, like going on tour, it's like I've spent thousands of miles on the road and yeah. plenty of bad hotels. And, and when some, uh, some young, some young blood, some young kid was asking me about how do you do it to become a musician full time or like how, how do you go on tour and all this, I'm like... Well, it depends on what you want to do. You should make, you should clearly define what your expectations and what your wants are. Because if you just want to drive around the country and play shows, it's not that hard to do and not make any money. And just, it's not that hard to do. It's pretty easy. You can find places to do that. But what, what is your intention? What is your goal? And being honest with yourself about that, I think it's crucial Yeah. in this day and age, you know? Absolutely. I think it's good advice. You know, to be realistic about what do you what do you want from it, and you don't have to be realistic because as long as you're okay with disappointment. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I heard Francis Schaeffer is a uh, an author and expat theologian art critic, and he uh, in the '60s he set up this commune kind of place in Switzerland, and you could come stay there if you. If you you had to attend the lectures and you had to like clean up or have a job to yeah. clean the house or whatever. Yeah. One of the things he was saying that was so fascinating is in a thousand years or two thousand years when they go and they dig up these civilizations that were mm-hmm. once so great, they they don't dig up the bank records, you know, or the or the stock market. But they dig up the the frescoes and yeah. the, the art, and yeah. and that tells them what the people thought and what they were. Yeah. And I was like, so it is a long game, you know? yeah. And it's a meaningful long game, but people have to realize that if you're when you're playing it, you're playing that game, whether you yeah. like it or not. You know, if you're if you're in it for as a writer, that's it. And it's like Van Gogh was like, maybe I'm not an artist for my time. Maybe I'm an artist for another generation. Wow. You know? Yeah. I mean, and that's why, I mean, I think I was just so drawn to folk music is like folk music is just music of the people wherever you go. It, it, it's all encompassing. It's like, you know, there's folk music in Malaysia. It's just the traditional music over there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like when I like this is 20 something years ago, I, I lived in on the Greek islands for like three or four months when I was like 19. I kind of dropped out of college and. Uh, it was on Mykonos, which is a huge party club, you know, island scene, you know. Uh, and I would, I spent every night after I got off work playing music in the streets. And it was amazing how, you know, having the language barrier with most everybody, but how you could still entertain and, and tell a story and people would listen, even if they didn't understand. And all these discotheques and clubs, there was a... Uh, a, a bar at the very end of the island on the main part of the town called Zorba's. And it's like, you know, Zorba the Greek. And I was like, oh, it's kind of touristy. But I got in there and it was a husband and wife and he played the bazooki, which is kind of like the banjo, oh, but the yeah. traditional I instrument. I love that, yeah. And they sing all these traditional Greek songs, folk songs. Yeah. And man, I would go in there, I would sing for a couple hours and I'd go in and drink some ouzo at the end of the night and, and watch and I was just mesmerized. 
these songs. And I was like, I would ask them afterwards, you know, what was that last one about? And they're like, oh, it's like 300 years old. It's about this battle between, or it's a love song that's, you know, a traditional love song. Even though I didn't understand what they were saying, I was so mesmerized by it. And that long game, like like I said, being okay with who you are and what you're doing, you never know what's going to happen with these songs once you record them or no, once you sing true. them for somebody. Yeah, you know, I, I, f- I firmly believe that. You know, because because there's a museum in Amsterdam to an artist that didn't sell one painting, what never you know? did, and and didn't know it. You know, didn't he never knew any of this? How powerful it was. And I'm like, man, that's just like the long game is the thing. It's not an easy game, but I feel like it's meaningful, you know. And, and mm-hmm. it's hard as much as we joke about we not we're not as young as we used to be, but we still have the desire, you know. You're writing songs, and and uh, and connecting, and, and it stops. It's uh, what is it? It's a quote that's like. Some people go to clubs so they can forget, but I write songs to help them remember. Oh, you know? I love it, dude. And um, it's and that's true. You know, it's like you oh. got to remember who you are. <laughs> I mean, and dude, the uh, case in point, this past year, uh, a buddy of mine has come out to some shows who I've known over 25 years. We went to high school together and uh, good buddy. Every time he comes out, he likes to make a little scene and like kind of hoot and holler a little bit louder than everybody. But he started, and he's done this forever. He just hadn't come to shows in a while. He would always scream out, uh, sing the Texas song. And I'm like, oh, God. I mean, I wrote this song when I was like 18. As much as it's like kind of a, a Texas pride song, it's kind of like an F.U. song to, all, to every other state. And I wrote it when I started going to school in Arkansas. And... Granted, the uh, the style of writing, it does sound like a 19-year-old me, but it's ridiculous how he still wants to hear it Yeah, because he loves it. Hands down, even though I never want to play the song, people, people <laughs> yeah, love it in the audience. Yeah. They're like, yeah, Texas song, you know? I mean, and it's like, I wish I never would have written I know, this it's song. Like, it's you like know? you're glaring at 19-year-old you off the side of the stage. You... You did this. Yeah, I know. This is all your fault. The the line is, you know, uh, you know, uh, that's right. I'm from Texas, but I'm not looking for a fight is how it ends. uh, The the end of the the refrain, everyone. And then the very last verse, I say, that's right. I'm from Texas. And everybody here not from Texas wishes they were from Texas. And that's all right. And so uh, you so you get that response from people that, like I said, I never would have thought. 25 years ago when I wrote that song that it would I would be singing it still oh yeah and it's his fault (laughs) or it's my fault I guess I don't know yeah it's just the songs have their own audience and personality outside the writer it's weird don't you think because that people have the relationships with the song song. it's their it's their their relationship yeah Uh and then they're like you facilitate that for me for a minute because I gotta hear my song you know yeah and yeah and when they ask for it it's like uh once you write it, I mean, I was talking to um, my buddy Nolan. We were up in New York a few years ago working on a, a record, Nolan Wheeler from the Wheeler Brothers. And we were writing. I was helping him write some lyrics and music on some songs that he had kind of gotten together. And it was uh, it was late night after the session. And we were like up on some Brooklyn bar looking at the Manhattan skyline. And um, I was like, oh, man, that Grateful Dead song, he's gone. And he was like, oh, yeah. And in the few minutes that we were starting to talk about it, I was like, oh, 
no, it's slower. The slower than that. And he goes, no, 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 seventy-two. That version. And I go, no, seventy-seven, dude. That's the version of the song. And like, we both had this idea in our head of the the right way that the, the Grateful Dead should have played this song. Yeah. And you know, and I said, and I remember telling him, I'm like, man, once you write a song, it's 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 kind of not yours anymore, man. It's 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 for everybody else. I mean, you don't get to tell people how to feel when they listen to it's, it. It's true. I don't want to say it's a hard pill to swallow, but once you can kind of accept that or realize that, I think it's kind of, um, you know, maybe liberating or something, you know? Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the residency that you've got here in Lockhart. You're going to, you're doing one at old pal, right? Yeah, man. I'm, I'm pumped about it. I've done three. They gave me, uh, I think they do brunch the last Sunday of the month around noon to two. They've been trying to, I'd gotten a few emails about trying to get out here to play there and none of the, the dates were working out and I couldn't get the band or trying to, maybe I'll come out solo. And, um, you know, as we were mentioning, there's all these places that are, that are gone in Austin now and trying to find other places to play. And I'm just grateful that old pal reached out offered me this last Sunday. So for at least through the rest of the year, uh, September, October, November, December, doing the last Sunday of the month, these last few have been a a lot of fun, man. It's been kind of, there's been a nostalgic element to it, even though it's new. Like, you know, having uh, all these gigs over the last, you know, almost two decades in Austin, like, playing every uh, Sunday. We had that Sunday brunch at Uncle Billy's Barbecue uh, in the brewery on Barton Springs. Uh, we had that for almost eight years. That's right, yeah. I mean, and it's crazy to think about. They had they had a budget for, for music, and they took care of us. It was work for the guys and I. And if I couldn't be there, I would just have one of my friends go play, and they'd get the cash. And yeah. it was so amazing. Or like bungalow on rainy street when it rainy street first started and the black heart remember the black heart man and those and these these places they were not just a not only just a cool gig a job as my father-in-law calls them he doesn't call them gigs or shows he goes a job because he's been that's what it was you got a job tonight yeah you know uh to have this opportunity to have something regular and consistent that is cool and the people are listening you know even if they're eating in old pal i mean it's been uh really uh comforting to be there and like i did a a blaze foley song and then i did a town song and then i did a john prine song not all in in a row but they were in the second set and uh one of the bartenders i can't think of him was an older guy when i got done he goes you know, my brother and I used to hang out with Towns oh, and Blaze Greg. all the yeah, time. He, he did yes. hang out all the time, yeah. And he started telling me stories. And I was like, dude, I want to come out here just to hear you tell me stories about this. Because it's that access to this other time, to these these people that we I always call Blaze. You know, my best friend I never got to meet. Because the story goes at the Cactus, the Cactus Cafe back when Griff used to run it. I don't know. He he had me open it up for somebody, and I got to open up for like some of my idols, like Greg Brown and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. There, oh, I got well, to meet yeah. these people that I'm like, you know, Ramblin' Jack Elliott used to hang out with Woody Guthrie. Absolutely. And yeah. and I've hung, and I got to open up for Ramblin' Jack uh, a few years ago in Little Rock at the Whitewater Tavern, and uh, you know, treat me like a son, and just telling stories about him and Woody in 1943 driving across the country, and it's like, is this real life? You know, is this really so what's great. going on? Yeah. 
he said, uh, man, quit drinking all the nice beer. And I'm like, I'm drinking Lone Star. And he goes, yeah, but those cost money. He's like, no one drinks Rolling Rock. Just drink Rolling Rock. And I was like, okay. He's like, you can have all the Rolling Rock that you want. I was like, okay. And since I was opening for some, one of my idols or something, I had to like put on like a kind of a dress jacket, you know, yeah, with the little nice. pockets inside. Exactly. And I was just going to save myself a trip to the back cooler in his office. So I put a couple rolling rocks on the inside of my jacket. And then uh, the show was over and I was leaving and I went to give Griff a hug goodbye. And he patted on my shirt and he goes, are you stealing beer from me? And I said, no, dude, you said I could have all the rolling rock. He's like, yeah, to drink here. You can't take them with you. And I was like, well, you didn't clarify that. I didn't know. Yeah. And he goes, I, I'm going to have to ban you. And I was like, dude, I've got a show here next week that you have me playing. And he goes, there's only one other person that I've banned from the cactus for stealing beer, Blaze Foley. And I was like, oh. You can put me in the club, man. Yeah, cool. man. I was like, I'll take that badge. Yeah, man. that's good. <laughs> That's why I'm glad the hole in the wall has been saved, and we got some of right. the, some of the thing that are still up there in in, and, uh, in Austin, and then down here, uh, trying to create a culture that might, you know, help foster that kind of thing. That's yeah. what we're hoping to do. Well, it seems to be happening, man. You know, I mean, because over the last few years, like, I mean, I remember you were doing some shows overseas in the UK and some European tours and Morgan was playing bass with you and he was saying how you lived out here. And I'm like, well, I think I remember hearing that. And then word is traveling. Yeah. As you were saying, there's more and more cats that are moving out here. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, the cat's out of the bag that like, this is, it's hip, man. And uh, I love being here now. This is the yeah. third time I've been here in two weeks. Well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're here, you know. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. You, you've been doing singles as a recorded format. Yeah, the, um, the I mean, the last full-length record I did was like right after COVID, like during COVID. You know, as an independent artist, there's no one to ask. There's no obligations. You know, there's like, you know, it's like you have to keep writing. And that's something that Alejandro Escovedo told me a long time ago. He was like, once you get done making a, a new piece of art, a new record, you need to start working on the next one because that's what we do. And you just need to keep doing it. And then like COVID and I'd been working on some other projects. So it'd been a few years since I'd done a record and I had a few that were in the bag. And then I started writing some more. And I was like, I guess I'm going to put out a record. What we were laughing about earlier, like, why? What's the point? It's like, well, no, this is what we do. So this is internal dialogue of like what's going on. But I put that one out uh, in 2021, Cut So Deep, which, uh, I really love the record as a whole because it does it does take a few songs that never made it out of the Dropbox yeah. from a few years before that and yeah. combined them with some new ones and made this little special thing. But uh, the last few years since then, like you said, there's songs kind of building up in a in a file on a on a computer and uh, the handful of them like they don't really go together. So the last few that I've done are a little bit more. Like, I guess it would say more on that reggae jam band kind of rock and rock. Oh, that's cool. Vibe vein. Uh, the one I did just last month is called Little Beast. You know, I have no clue where it came from. It is definitely a different kind of corner of my mind. But Patrick Hertzfeld, Signal Hill recording, my, my drummer and best bud, we were looking at all these songs and there is a group of like six songs that are were almost all entirely written on the piano. 
So there's that kind That's of nice, yeah. theme that goes with it. And, and Trick and I just did all of this stuff on it. I'm usually playing bass and guitar with the piano, but they're, they're all kind of ballady, kind of like ballads. Yeah. They're happy, but they're kind of sad sounding or, but they, they just, they feel like they go together. So I'm thinking, uh, I think November is when those are going to come out. And I want to, uh, I'm going to get you the, I guess what I'm calling the title of the EP is uh, pocket full of sunshine. Oh, cool. And, right, yeah. uh, you know, it's like hearing songs that you've, you know, wrote a year ago and, and, and you, and you, and you still like it or you're okay with it. You know, that's a good sign that, yeah. you know, like you're not, there's not a problem with it. You're like, oh, I don't like that line or I don't, it's, it doesn't make you it feel It takes anything. me a long time to do anything now. Like I'm writing for years and I'm like, okay, that, that was cool. Yeah. And, and, and all five of six of these songs, they were written not together and not intentionally. So it's like in retrospect, looking back on a year's worth of songs. Yeah. You're like, well, this one was in January. This one was in April. Yeah. This one was, or these two were written like in the same month or something. And, and when you put them all together and you listen to them back to back, you're like, Oh, I mean, I guess that is the goal. That's the idea that you want them all to kind of, you know, well, what we were talking about earlier, yeah. So many of my records have been like all over the place, all these different genres, which in a, in a way probably prohibited me from getting certain tours, or, or you know. But um, in, yeah, in other ways, it helped me get on certain tours. So yeah, and you can't fake it. You have to do what's yeah. in your heart. If if you're built that way, or it's not gonna work. I mean, out. I guess some people don't have to do it from the heart because that's what we were saying. That like, there's so many people. It's like this contrived you know it's a forced thing and and you can kind of tell it's like a stick or it's like a whole like it's a look or yeah, something yeah right yeah know? it's like a lookbook kind of thing <laughs> sound book we'll promote the um the residency which we're looking forward to yeah man I'm and is that a full band thing i've been or doing is it, just, it solo yeah. uh i've been doing it solo for the for the brunches and there might be something in december like a friday night that i'm going to bring the band out I've been digging it. I'm grateful for it. I'm excited about them. I've been looking forward to them. I didn't know what to expect either. And I think kind of going into it, not knowing and not expecting anything like just a, we'll just see what it's got, how it goes. Yeah. It's a great vibe. And so I'm thinking it's, it's, you know, as a songwriter, however you do it, it's going to be great. Things change by the hour 
You can lose it all in just a second Fast forward, flash a light, keep safe Night flower The wind sings sweet Blowing through the trees And a dog's bark It's a howling in the breeze These late, late nights come Almost every day but the rhythm of my feet Walking down the street It keeps me sane Don't waste another minute Cause things change by the hour You could lose it all in just a second Fast forward, flash a light Keep safe Flower. Don't waste another minute Cause things change by the hour You could lose it all in just a second Fast forward, flash a light, keep safe Night flower Don't waste another minute Cause things change by the hour You could lose it all in just a second Fast forward, flash a light, keep safe Night flower Seven eight six four four is sponsored by Texas Hatters, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, Wendy R. Bookery and Gifts, Corazon Austin Realty, and Viva Trilingua, the Big Bang of Texas Music Exhibit, at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. In kind sponsors are Predding Solutions, Willigan's Island, Courthouse Nights, the Rock House Airbnb, Birdie House Airbnb, Gaslight Baker Theater, and Crystal Glaze Photography. Studio, edited by myself, Stephen Collins, and Danny Manning. In-studio performance by Graham Wilkinson. Thank you to our contributor, Jason Williams, for Tricks in the Kitchen. Our show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Amazon, Radio Public, and everywhere else for podcasts or streams.